Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelalti from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Molly Malin about her new book, The Building and Breaking of Peace, Corporate Activities in Civil War Prevention and Resolution. This book was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Scholars who study conflict resolution tend to focus on a particular set of actors. They focus on states, international organizations, and NGOs. But this book challenges us to bring corporations into the discussion of peace and conflict. Molly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lemise. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I went to University of Georgia for undergrad and had the opportunity to do some really great uh, research there as an undergrad with a couple of the different institutes they have on campus. And it led me to go further my education at UC Davis, where I got my PhD. And at the time, there were a lot of scholars that were doing some really innovative research on mediation. And um, we had a, a really great network of people that were interested in understanding mediation and I would say conflict resolution more broadly. And it, it was really this kind of sweet spot when I was in graduate school and there was this great network of people that were um, helping one another out and really um, seeking to understand the different diplomatic acts that took place. Um, from UC Davis, I uh, started at Loyola University Chicago, and I've been here for 13 years. It's been a wonderful place to, um, to launch my career, and um, I, am, I feel very lucky to, to be at such a, a great school and in a, a department that's been um, really supportive of my work. Um, now, this book is your second book, is that correct? No, this is my first book. It so, is your first book. <laughs> yes. So how did, you, how did you come to write it? Um, well, so during grad school, I was doing all this research on um, mediation, and my dissertation was actually trying to expand that literature to think about conflict management more broadly. And so I was focused at the time on state actors and things states can do to try to end a conflict that they're not an overt joiner to. Um, and so how can they pressure disputing countries to come to the table and negotiate or act as a mediator or economic sanctions, you know, all the stuff we're seeing right now happen. Um, and I really wanted those disparate literatures to talk to one another more. So kind of the mediation people were different from the economic sanctions people. Um, and they were different from the negotiations people. And so my, um, 
PhD dissertation literature or research was all um, trying to bring that stuff together. Um, and throughout that research, I'm thinking, you know, states are not only actors that are doing this. And there's certainly um, a lot of really cool work that's been done on international organizations and their role in that process. But I wasn't seeing anything on non-state actors. And there's a little bit of work on NGOs and, and the role that they play. But certainly there wasn't anybody talking about the private sector um, in terms of corporations and businesses. And so... I felt like it was kind of this natural next step to to say, well, who else is interested in resolving conflict and to to bringing peace in places? Um, and I wanted to to expand the conversation, if you will. That's wonderful. And the result is a really fantastic book. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, so maybe the best place to begin is to ask you about the questions that drive this book. Uh, now, you're looking at two interrelated questions here. Um, can you tell us about them? Sure. So the first step of any kind of conflict resolution um, argument is to understand who gets involved and what their incentives are to get involved. And so um, the the first research question that I tackle with the book is seeking to understand what motivates um, the private sector to act in ways that are kind of beyond what we would see in standard economic exchange. And so why is it that businesses are doing things beyond just like selling the things that they sell or buying the things and selling the things and making the things? Um, what incentivizes that? And I think um, they, to understand kind of a, a big portion of this book is to define kind of what are those other activities and what constitutes third party engagement and, and uh, conflict resolution. And so when I, when I was looking at businesses in the area where I live, I'm in a, a very heavily corporate uh, part of the country, and they're really actively engaged. And so I was wondering, you know, why is it that in Chicago you have all these companies that are doing, they're sponsoring my races, and, you know, they're volunteering in the schools, and we have charter schools that are sponsored by corporations. And um, what is it that, that pushes them to engage in that way? And why is it that in some countries we see really active private sectors and in other countries um, that the private sector is really just strictly um, doing kind of day-to-day -day operations and not engaging the community in any meaningful way? Um, so the first, the first research question I look at in the book is um, what is it that incentivizes uh, businesses to be engaged community members? Great. So, and then the second question? Yes. So then I go on to understand or seek to understand what that, that outcome is from those efforts. And so um, once I look at the factors that um, motivate intervention, I really want to understand, is this making a difference? Um, and so I want to know, okay, when they're, when they're getting involved, does this lead to conflict prevention? Does it lead to more peaceful societies? What happens when they get involved in um, ongoing conflicts um, after they've already started, right? So if, if they've been uninvolved previously um, and become much more engaged, does that have implications for what happens in terms of conflict resolution? 
Wonderful. Um, so the concept of peace building is really central to this book. How do you understand this term or this concept of peace building? Yes. So this was a really complicated part of writing the book because there's so much literature out there on peace building and kind of the UN concept of peace building is really something that happens after a conflict has already um, gone on. And so you have kind of conflict resolution and this peace building effort that takes place to make sure that the conflict doesn't reemerge. Um, and I'm approaching peace building as a much more kind of holistic investment in society. And so what is it that um, companies can do that can help to build kind of better life chances, if you will, for um, community members in the areas where they're operating? And so it's not necessarily um, the way we might, Butchos Butchoscali would define it, but it is, I think, trying to capture this different form of engagement in terms of the way businesses can get involved. And so they're not going to have kind of the same tool chest that state actors would have available. So let's get into your theoretical framework and maybe start with your first research question. So why do corporations get involved in peace building, understood, again, in this sort of very holistic uh, way? Yes. So I take a very kind of rational choice approach to understanding both of these questions that I'm looking into. Um, and I think for the for the first question, I'm really interested in kind of the state characteristics that would motivate involvement. And so I'm not as interested in kind of the, the, the corporation's characteristics because I'm looking at variation across states. And one of the main findings that I have um, is that the um, the structure of the government and the capacity of the government to um, to really provide for the communities that they're serving can motivate the business to get involved or not get involved. And so we see kind of really different levels of involvement based on whether they need to act or not. And so there's really no incentive to act or be engaged or really invest in failed states. And so we don't have a lot of corporate activity that's going on in Somalia, for example. Um, but it, there's this kind of middle ground where there's kind of the rule of law is being enforced, but um, the government isn't able to provide full services to all of the, the members of a state. And so this is kind of providing an opportunity for the um the corporations that step in and provide more of a service and kind of bridge that gap between um, government services and what the people of that state need. Moving to uh, outcomes and your, your second uh, research question, right? So how does corporate peace building affect violence in your, in your framework? Sure. So um, here I'm really looking at the expected utility that rebels um, face when they're deciding whether or not to rebel. And so I think um, the private sector really has an opportunity to raise the cost of joining a rebellion, where um, if they're uh, providing a point employment opportunities for um, people in our community, providing educational opportunities, if there are kind of better alternatives than joining a rebellion, 
that's going to raise the cost of joining a rebel group. And so um, there's reason to think that um, the private sector can really kind of increase um, the value of peace to individuals and prevent violence from occurring. And so um, what I find is there's kind of this complicated relationship between corporate involvement and actual peace. And so corporations can really help to prevent violence from happening. And the results show that um, there's like a 50% reduction in in the probability of um, a civil war breaking out. But at the same time, they have their own interests at stake. And so when companies get involved later, once a conflict has already broken out, the the outcomes are really different. And so corporate involvement, once there is a, a conflict ongoing, is actually prolonging violence because they have a seat at the table, right? They're becoming political actors. They are... Um, They're interested in what the outcome of the peace agreement is typically. And so um, it has kind of a prolonging effect on ongoing violence. So it's not really a straightforward effect on, um, on peace. I have to say it's a it's a very sophisticated theory. Uh, so can you tell us about the methods that you use to try to investigate this theory? Sure. This um well, I had like a, a love-hate relationship, I would say, with um, with the methods uh, used in the book. And so the initial step in this project was um, to collect a bunch of data that took way longer than I thought it would take to collect. Um, and so I, I think it was about a five-year data collection process where... Um, I would start doing some data collection and realize like that it was never going to get done if I collected as um, detailed uh, data as I wanted to have. Um, And so I ended up collecting data um, in Latin America, the Caribbean, uh, Africa, and the Middle East, looking at large domestically headquartered firms and the um, things that they're doing in their communities. And so um, it ended up being around 950 firms that were included in the final data. And that goes from the year 2000 to uh, 2018. And so that part took much longer. Um, but then I also did some field work um, for the case studies in Tunisia, Colombia, and Northern Ireland. And this was really a fun part of the project for me because I didn't have uh, any training in qualitative methods and I'd never done field interviews. And it really gave me the opportunity to kind of see that part of the discipline um, and to see my data in a really different light. And so um, I feel like I was able to come up with much stronger answers to what's going on because of all the people that I talked to in the field. And I'm looking forward to talking through sort of some of your cases in a little bit. Um, But do you mind telling us why you selected these three particular cases, uh, Tunisia, Colombia, Northern Ireland? Sure. Um, Well, they all have really different histories of conflict, um, which were kind of interesting to me kind of outside of this project. But also they all have this colonial history um, and have, you know, had to 
had really different ways of navigating that colonial legacy. And so kind of the nature of their governments has been really different. And that has led to kind of different um, outcomes in terms of peace and violence. And so um, Colombia, I think you know, the world has been watching the peace process um, since the peace deal was signed in 2016. And there's been, you know, a lot of research done on the outcomes of that process. And so that was kind of an easy case for me to do, given that I, you know, I wanted to have a, a colonial um, a state or a post-colonial state and wanted to have some variation in terms of regime type um, and levels of violence. Um, and so that's been kind of really fun to watch academic, all the academic research that's burgeoned there. Um, and then in Northern Ireland, um, you still have this kind of simmering ongoing struggle despite the peace deal, which has been really interesting to learn about um, and to see how different communities are navigating that. That's uh, really fascinating. And I'm, uh, as I said, I'm looking forward to talking through the cases, but maybe let's take a step back and start with your statistical analysis, right? So do you mind just telling us briefly about some of the results that you get from that? Sure. Um, so in the first chapter that's looking at the research question about, um, okay, I'm gonna have to look at my results because I can't remember. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> This isn't the chapter that I present very often. Um, so in the first chapter, I'm looking at um, the probability that peacekeeping happens. And one of the main findings that I have in this chapter is that um, having a really strong government um, is going to actually decrease the probability of um firm engagement. And so firms are are most likely to act when they can fill the gaps, if you will. And so um, they're not getting involved if there's kind of no government or, or no state in place, but they're also not really getting involved when there's a really strong state in place. And so um, looking at all these different kind of measures of government effectiveness, I find that states are, are businesses are um, much more likely to get engaged when there is kind of a gap in the rule of law, um, when there's uh, kind of low regulatory quality or moderate regulatory quality, um, as well as kind of uh, government effectiveness being kind of uh, there, but not really strong. Um, at the same time, I find that uh, companies are really likely, much more likely to get engaged when there is a history of peace. And so peace really enables uh, corporations to start to think about engaging in different um, types of activities beyond um, business, daily business practices. And so more peaceful environments are much more likely to, to have um engaged corporations. Um, one of the things I was coding also when we did the data collection was whether or not companies were doing bad things, quote unquote. Um, and so um, some of the pushback I got initially on this project was, was, well, you know, companies are really just kind of taking advantage in all the ways that they can. And when there's violence, they're going to be kind of you know, taking advantage of the lack of rule of law. Um, and so I wanted to know if there 
getting engaged just to kind of protect their reputation, if you will. Um, and I do find that there's a slight relationship between kind of previously being caught being bad, if you will. Um, and so they do kind of try to brand wash after um, previous bad behavior. Um, but that relationship is not as strong as the relationship between gaps and governance. Right. And that that's sort of the first uh, empirical chapter, right, in, in the book. Um, you have a, a second empirical chapter that also, um, I think, uses statistical uh, evidence to look at your second research question, right, which is about outcomes. Can you tell us about some of your findings there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so for the second chapter that's looking at kind of the effects on peace, I look at the probability that there is that outbreak of civil violence. And if that occurs, what is the probability of that violence ending? Um, and so here I'm looking at how engaged firms affect whether violence occurs and whether it ends. And I find that across all these different measures of firm engagement, that violence is much less likely to break out. And so there really is this kind of strong preventative effect on um, civil violence occurrence when you have engaged domestically headquartered firms. At the same time, I find the inverse on the probability that that violence ends. And so when um, firms engage after a conflict has started, we're much less likely to get a peace deal um, because, and I explore this more in the case studies, but because what's going on is these firms are really kind of more interested in what the terms of those negotiations are. So, Great. So moving uh, to some of the case studies, right? Um, and let's maybe start with Columbia. Um, can you walk us through uh, this case and some of your findings there? Sure. Um, Columbia is a really interesting case because um, they have this 50-year-long civil war that's ongoing, and the nature of corporate engagement is changing during those 50 years. Um, so um, throughout kind of the history, the early years of the Civil War, you really don't have any corporate engagement. Um, in kind of the, the middle years of the Civil War, much of the fighting is going on um, in pretty rural areas. And so there really isn't an incentive for corporations to get involved. Um, they're not really heavily affected by the fighting. Um, and then you get the shift in the 80s that happens with the violence, where all of a sudden, um, Firms are being targeted, right? It, the violence urbanizes. Um, people are being kidnapped, um, and CEOs are, are really suddenly kind of more concerned and have to be actively thinking about um, the conflict and how to um, prevent being negatively impacted by the violence. And so then you start to get the private sector being involved much more actively, and it, it starts kind of small. Um, with them incentivizing talks between the two groups. Um, but then um, by the very end, when negotiations are taking place in Havana, you actually have um, representatives of business um, at the table with um, FARC and with the government. And so when the, with the Columbia case, it is a little bit complicated because you have paramilitaries fighting the government or fighting the FARC. You have the FARC or the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia 
fighting the government. Um, and you have other um, rebel groups that are still fighting the government now. And so there are several different peace processes that go on. Um, but I was really kind of focused on that relationship between the government and the FARC and the way that the business sector got engaged. Um, so how does the situation differ in Tunisia? So Tunisia is a really interesting case as well, because in Tunisia, you actually have um, a really strong um, union environment there. And so the private sector isn't really acting independent as independent companies, but it's rather the heads of the four major unions that are getting involved. And and so when the, the Arab Spring starts, the Jasmine Re- Revolution initially begins. Um, and they are actively in, involved from day one to make sure that the Jasmine Revolution remains um, peaceful. And so um, if you recall during the Arab Spring, this is like the heyday for social media and for different platforms in terms of organizing people. And they did a really great job of doing that and making sure that the the peace, the, the push for regime change was one that was peaceful and that everybody was coordinating on that. And so because of their strength in organizing people um, through these unions, they were able to um, really organize to make sure that all the protests that took place were peaceful. Um, and that led to really what was thought to be a very meaningful regime change. And it was, um, that's been kind of tenuous over the last year or so, but it's um, it, it was kind of seen as the one success story that came out of the Arab Spring. So I was going to ask you, but you know, if, if this is uh, not something you've kept up with, that's perfectly fine. But I was going to ask you about sort of more recent developments in Tunisia, whether you followed them and whether your sort of framework might explain, um, uh, you know, the, the corporate angle uh, 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 there. So Tunisia is kind of interesting because you really don't have, um, so I did all these interviews in in Tunisia and the vast majority of corporations aren't thinking about corporate social responsibility. Um, They're not really thinking about kind of ways they need to give back to their community. And there was one um, bank though, where I did interviews that actually was really thinking heavily about this. They were, you know, they had after school programs. They were thinking about the transportation issues that their workers face. They were thinking about all these different ways of giving back. And so they're not really engaged in kind of political dialogue in the same way that we see in Colombia. Um, And that's really kind of left to the unions. And so it's the unions that kind of form the bridge between um, the private sector and um, the government. So moving on to your third case with Northern Ireland, um, what, what, you know, what, what do you see there in that case study? Um, so Northern Ireland has this, uh, you know, depending on which dates are important to you, extremely long history of conflict, right? And it, even the start of the conflict is up for debate. Um, and so this conflict got much more violent Um in the 60s and 70s when in the era known as the Troubles and um, frequently a a target of the violence would be um, businesses and corporations because they were seen 
by the IRA as being this kind of symbol of colonialism. And so um, business leaders um, weren't really thinking about the peace process that much. They were, um, you know, trying to figure out how to stay safe and how not to have losses due to to violent attacks. Um, There's really important geopolitical stuff that's happening at the same time. And so the Cold War ends. Um, The U.S. suddenly doesn't have to tiptoe around the U.K. quite like it did during the Cold War. Um, And so you get this shift in U.S. policy where suddenly the U.S. is pushing um, the U.K. to try to create a peace process for um, Northern Ireland. And then um, this happens kind of at the Senate level with what's passed known as the McBride principles, where any company that's an American company that's doing business in Northern Ireland has to adopt fair hiring practices. And it's really that engagement that starts to push businesses in Northern Ireland to start to think about a peace process. And they really have a lead on the initial talks. They published this really famous paper called the Peace Dividend Paper. They um, talks about how Northern Ireland is really missing out on a lot of investment because of the fighting and that, um, that a peace deal would be good for everybody, basically. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's too bad that we can't like dive into <laughs> into these cases more, but maybe we can sort of zoom out again. Um, I, and I want to sort of go to the concluding chapter of the book, which is really so nicely written. Um, and one of the things that, uh, that I, I particularly liked about the conclusion is you lay out these very clear lessons. Right. Um, so do you mind taking us through uh, some of these lessons? Yes, one of the reasons I wrote the conclusion the way I did is that I wanted this to be accessible to anybody, right? And I wanted it to be something that people who were kind of interested in this topic more broadly um, could, you know, skim the book and come away with it with uh, something in hand. Um, And so some of the things I looked at was um, just kind of returning to the findings on what um, the role of government and the the importance of potentially building partnerships between the private sector and the government to fill in in places where the government isn't able to provide everything that's needed. And I think we see this um, potentially done well in some places in Colombia where there's this kind of really difficult um, geography and the state is, depending on who you talk to, not interested or not willing or not able to provide services to the whole country. Um, And so that's where um, the the private sector could potentially step in and be really effective. The other thing I find is that, yes, firms do invest in their reputation. Um, They are are worried about um, how they look. And I think this is only increasingly going to be the case, right? It's very hard to be a bad corporate actor and not get caught in this day and age. Um, I also find that 
the role of peace is really instrumental in promoting corporate peace building. And so um, being invested in environments that don't have uh, a lot of instability can actually encourage firms to prevent later instability. Um, and then if we think about or turning to think about the second research question um, in terms of the results of firm-led uh, peace building, I find that firms are really having this important effect on preventing violence, which I think is something that um, bodes well in terms of the future as we're seeing more and more corporations be engaged. Um, but I, I think also I highlight that there's kind of this caveat that kind of flushes out with the um, comparison of the case in Northern Ireland and the case in Colombia, that they're much more effective at um, resolving ongoing conflict if they're acting as this kind of neutral proponent of peace. And so this, in Colombia, you have kind of a one-sided engagement that's happening on the part of businesses. But um, in Northern Ireland, you have a private sector that's only pushing for a peace deal and they don't really care what that peace deal looks like and they're not um, lobbying one way or another or the terms of their agreement. And I think that's a really important lesson to take from the study as well. Thank you for that. Um, so, you know, it strikes me that this book and the argument is very policy relevant. So w what would you say are the implications uh, of the book for policy? Sure, that's something I've been thinking about a lot this week with all that's happening um, with Russia and Ukraine. And um, there's been, been a lot of headlines over the last week about U.S. corporations that are pulling out of Russia, um, I think in part due to kind of the struggle of operating there with the sanctions, um, but also because they don't want to be seen as being affiliated with a state that's engaged in these horrific acts in Ukraine. Um, and I think also there's a lot of public pressure, and I think we know that public opinion can be... Um, often misinformed and fickle. And so I, I think um, one of the policy implications of this book is that we have to be careful about corporate engagement being one-sided. And, you know, there could be, at, at this point, you know, they're very kind of apolitical in the way they're engaging. I, I seriously doubt that Starbucks is going to be sitting at the table um, if, um in Belarus, but um, I, I am kind of cautious about um, promoting kind of one-sided engagement, and um, and 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 so I I've been thinking through kind of what the policy relevance is of this book for um, the ongoing crisis. I think kind of more generally um, speaking, the 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 private sector really does kind of have an opportunity to be kind of a, a good in the places where they're investing. And it shows that these operations that they're doing when they're engaging their community really do have an important effect on the levels of peace and violence in the communities where they operate. And um, I'm hopeful that that will be the case in Chicago as well. I'm really glad you uh, you brought up the ongoing crisis in Ukraine because obviously we're recording 
um, about two weeks after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, um, and you know that I've also been paying a lot of attention to the news about uh, various corporations that have and have not pulled out of Russia. Um, and so that I, I think is something that's going to be of interest to our listeners as well. So thank you for that. Um, now, obviously, we've only sort of skimmed the surface of the book. Um, but is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is important for listeners to know? I think one of the things that I really struggled with when writing this book is um, how siloed different areas of academia are. And so when I was initially starting this, I came to the table with a background on conflict management and a lot of knowledge on kind of things that lead to peace and violence, but not so much knowledge about kind of how businesses work and the role they play. There's a lot of people in business schools that are kind of talking about this issue, talking about not only corporate social responsibility, but about conducting business and best practices and unstable environments. Um, and so it was really fun to get to learn about this kind of other area that I wasn't familiar with. But really what I'm hoping this book does is to push for more communication between different areas of academia. Um, it's been really interesting to have the opportunity to do this interdisciplinary work and to think about some of the, the old problems that we're dealing with in IR and that we've been talking about for a long time, but to bring this new research um, and other discipline into that conversation as well. And the book does a really wonderful job of, uh, you know, bridging the gap uh, between between these different areas. I highly recommend it to readers. Um, so, Molly, we've taken up a lot of your time. So just one final question for you. Uh, what are you working on now that, the, you know, the book is out? Um, wh what is it that's uh, engaging your time? Sure. So um, this book is really focused at the national level and at national level negotiations, national level involvement of the private sector. And I really don't think that's the correct unit of analysis. I think that a lot of what happens is really um, at the local and community level. Um, and so I'm looking to explore that. I have a, a project I'll be doing field work on this May in Colombia where um, Santiago Sosa and I are doing interviews of ex-combatants who've been engaged in entrepreneurial projects. We are looking at the level of corporate support that they're getting in terms of training um, and looking at how that uh, leads to decreases, we hope, in recidivism. Um, and so um, we are, are really excited about that project. I have another project with a graduate school student at Loyola, Mahir Modi. And Mahir and I are looking at um, corporate calls for negotiations and national level kind of support by the corporate sector um, when they push for mediation, push for negotiation, and whether or not that increases the probability of peace agreements. Those sound like great projects. I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, the, the, the work that uh, the written work that comes out of them. Um, Molly, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. The book is Molly Millin's The Building and Breaking of Peace, Corporate Activities in Civil War Prevention and Resolution, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.